Can I get you to turn with me please to um, Genesis chapter 14? Genesis chapter 14. Uh, on one of the handouts that you received as you came in, there is an outline of uh, where we're going in the sermon, so it might be helpful to have that open in front of you as well. Genesis 14 is on page 12. A few weeks ago, when we began this series on Genesis 12 to 25, we saw at the beginning of Genesis 12 that God promised Abram the land of Canaan. He promised him many descendants who would live in the land. He promised that he would bless him abundantly there. But then as we went on, we also saw how Abram had jeopardized the promise. Abram had jeopardized the promise of the land by moving out of it to Egypt. He jeopardized the promise of descendants by putting his wife in danger. He jeopardized the promise of the land again by offering part of it to Lot. And yet God was gracious and kind to him, even though he didn't deserve it, and he kept on saving him from these situations. God's promises would not fail in spite of Abram's unworthiness of them. Now in today's passage, Abram, he's there in the land. And he encounters two kings. Two quite different kings. With two quite different kingdoms. This is an encounter that could lead him up two different paths. A path of blessing or a path of destruction. By now, of course, we kind of worked out which path he's going to take because we know that God is faithful to his promise. But the story begins with battles and wars and the names of nine kings, not two. There's a war here between four kings who are far away and five kings who are local. The four kings far away are listed in verse 1 of chapter 14. Amraphel, king of Shinar. Now, Shinar is Babylon. Ariok, king of Elisar. Kedelioma, king of Elam, who seems to be the, the ringleader of these kings. And Tidal, king of Goim. Right? These, these people come from Mesopotamia, uh, Iraq, that side of, of the Middle East. These kings, Kedelioma and his allies, were fighting these other kings from nearby, the local kings, from this valley of Sidim. Now, I've got the wrong... Yeah, don't worry, I've got the, I, I forgot to put it in. All right. um, just imagine the, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the land of Israel, uh, down the bottom, down the south there, there is a, uh, there's the Dead Sea. All right. If you can't imagine, don't worry. Down the south there is the Dead Sea. Now, this valley is the bottom of the Dead Sea. Right down south, just outside, the, just outside of Canaan. In fact, right now, it's already covered with water, Dead <laughs> Sea. So anyway, uh, that's the place where Lot went to stay in our reading last week. These five kings from that valley uh, are listed in verse 2. Bera, king of Sodom. Bersha, king of Gomorrah. Shinab, king of Adma. Shemeba, king of Zeoim. And the king of Bela, which is Zor. See, these five kings, they had been under the rule of uh, King Kedeleoma, right? The, the, the guy from Mesopotamia, long way east. They'd been paying tribute to him for 12 years. But then in verse 3, they formed a coalition. They got together, and the following year, in verse 4, they rebelled. And so the next year, Kedalioma and his allies came to attack him. And on the way, they met with resistance from various people whose territory they marched through, and these mighty kings put them down. So they defeated, verse 5, 
the Raphaim in Ashtaroth, Kanem, and, and all the other people there who we can't pronounce. Right? Down, down, down they came. Defeat, 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 defeat. Go down further south. Turn around. Uh, and come back up again. And then they go into this valley where the rebel kings are. They're a powerful military alliance that sweeps through the Middle East. And they attack in verse 8 and 9. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, the resort went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedileomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Aphraphel, king of Shina, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. And the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all the provisions, and went on their way. The bottom line is, these Kings from far away beat up the local kings and took everything. Lots of booty. They taught them a big lesson and off they were heading home in victory. Now, if CNN or BBC or Al Jazeera were reporting this, then you know that's probably what they would have said. But there is one important thing about this battle that no one would have bothered about. One man and his family who were among the victims of this war. And yet this man and his family are actually the only reason why we still remember this war today. For this man was Abram's nephew. Verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. News about this reached Abram. Not through CNN, uh, but through an eyewitness that escaped the battle. Verse 13. Then one who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the, the uh, Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anna, who were allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Right, so Abram actually now is, by now he's, he's quite a powerful man, isn't he? He's got his own little militia. It's party of allies. See, nothing's changed in the Middle East after all these years, isn't it? Abram gets the message, swings into action. Now, these guys have gone back up north. And Abram chases them up north on the other side of the river until right up to Dan, where the river's not there anymore. It's right the north part of where, where, where Israel was, or would be. And there he makes some strategic plans. He divides his forces into various units and they launch this surprise coordinated attack against the enemy under the cover of darkness. And the shocking thing is it works. Verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Chobah, north of Damascus. And he brought back all the possessions and he brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Amazing victory. Great miracle, really. How could... How could Abram with 318 men defeat four kings and their armies that had just ravaged the area? Granted, armies at that time were much smaller than armies nowadays, but, but still, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. We don't know exactly how it happened, but, but we do know that it is God who gave those powerful kings into Abram's hands. And with God, nothing is impossible. I wonder if anyone here feels a little bit like Lot today made some bad decisions, Lot made a bad decision in choosing to go in the land. 
out of the land, live among the evil people of Sodom. Maybe some of your decisions have landed you into trouble. And you feel like rescue is impossible. Caught up by forces more powerful than yourself. Well, if that's you, don't despair. Because God can do more than all we can ask or imagine. In fact, He has. Because no matter what the problem you're trapped with at the moment, you've had an even bigger problem. All of us did. We were captured by the devil. Slaves to sin because of our evil behavior. And when Jesus died on the cross, he rescued us. He took our sins and our punishment on himself. He took our guilt so that God can, can count us righteous, declare us not guilty. He paid the debt of sin that we owe. And by doing so, he defeated Satan. The devil has nothing left over us. For those who trust in Jesus, we know Jesus has saved us. He's made us his own. When we realize actually how sinful we are, we'll realize that's an impossible task. But Jesus has done it. Because with God, nothing is impossible. Now, we've seen Abram rescue Lot from these foreign kings, but she hasn't got to the main point of the story yet. Still painting the background. And now we've come to the point again. Abram from up north retraces the steps. Heads back south. Heads back home. And someone comes out to meet him. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedaleoma and the kings who were with him. It's a good thing they didn't list that again. Huh? The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. That is, the king's valley. I wonder if anyone remembers what we saw last week in Genesis 13 about Sodom. Only three things we really know about Sodom so far in Genesis. They're all in chapter 13. First of all, it's part of the beautiful Jordan Valley. Looks like the Garden of the Lord, but it isn't. Lot went and chose to stay there. Two, we know that God was planning to destroy it because of its wickedness, together with its neighbor Gomorrah. And verse 13 of chapter 13, look at it with me. The men of Sodom were wicked. Great sinners against the Lord. See, Sodom was a really evil city. Really, really bad. God, it was on God's target list to destroy. And this is their king coming out to meet Abram. The king from verse 2, we know his name was Bera. We don't know what that means, but apparently the Hebrew word for evil is, is part of that name anyway. Coming out to meet Abram, and you're meant to get a, a bad feeling about this. What's going to happen? But before we find out what this king of Sodom says or does, we're quickly introduced to another king, the king of Salem. In verse 18, Salem was probably the city that would one day be Jerusalem. It was near the route that Abram was taking back down south. Although the word Salem simply means peace, from which we get shalom or salam. So maybe he wasn't the king of the city, it's just he's the king of peace. Either way, this king's name was Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. And so in chapter 14, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem or king of peace, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. This is strange. 
This Melchizedek guy just appears seemingly out of nowhere. Genesis is the book of genealogies. It tells us how God is planning to save the world. It talks about the family that he has chosen to bring the blessing. All the important people that God has chosen, all the important people that are part of the plan of salvation have got genealogies. And, and there's no genealogy here. People may say, well, what, so what? There's no genealogy for the king of Sodom either. But any of the other kings and other rings don't have genealogies. Why should this guy? But, but that just, those guys aren't important. This guy, this guy's, this guy's different. He's really significant. He's a king, that's okay, but he's a priest of God most high as well. Now that's very strange, isn't it? I don't expect to find a priest of God most high among a pagan people, but, but there he is. He brings up bread and wine for Abram and his friends. He comes to serve them. Refreshing. And the next thing he does is bless Abram. He calls on God's blessing on him. He blessed him and said, verse 19, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Just as an aside, someone asked me at the Smack 2 community dinner last, last week, what it means to bless God and be blessed by God. We can understand you know, what it means to ask God for blessings, but how about blessing God? Surely it can't, can't mean the same thing. Blessing's hard to define, isn't it? You can't find a good definition for it that encompasses both those sides of things, but I think better than defined, it's pictured for us. We see it pictured in the Garden of Eden. We see ultimately pictured in the in the new creation. But where we see the picture in the Garden of Eden, that, that's where blessings to be found. That's where everything was, was perfectly fine. So so my little theory is that bless someone is to be asked that they be treated like, like in the garden or like in the new creation back in the garden where, where people really lived as God's people under God's rule getting everything from him so when we pray for blessing we're praying that people would be, would, would be richly provided for by God like, like in the garden and when we bless God we're praying that he'll be honoured and loved and trusted and glorified like, like he was before the fall we call upon him to bless people, we call upon him to treat them with grace, to be kind to them, to give them good things, like, like the human beings before the fall, to give them that foretaste of heaven, the place of ultimate blessing. Melchizedek blessed Abram. Now, the writer of the Hebrews showed us, in our New Testament reading, that this shows that he's greater than Abram. And this is confirmed by the fact that Abram gives a tithe to him. Verse 20 says that Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Under the law of Moses, they would come in 500 years later, the priests would receive a tithe from the people. The people in those days would also give a tithe to their king. And here, Melchizedek, paid, uh, uh, Abram, the one who has received all the promises of God, the key person in God's whole salvation plan up to this point, is giving a tithe to this Melchizedek guy. See, Abram is so great, and this Melchizedek is greater. Abram voluntarily and willingly acknowledges him as king and priest, as his true king, as his true priest. And so it is so strange, therefore, isn't it? We don't know anything about his background, we know nothing about him at all. It's 
going on here? Keep your little blue card or something else or bookmark or something in Genesis 14. Come with me to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. It's on page 611. Psalm 110 is really a psalm about the ascended Christ. 2,000 years after Abraham, Jesus would die and rise again and take his place as ruler of heaven and earth. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Which is what happened to the Lord Jesus. He would sit at God's right hand until his enemies were crushed, as it says in verse 1. His rule will extend out to all the world, as it goes in verse 2. As his word went forth, beginning in Jerusalem, from Zion, his people would lovingly serve him and honor him, as it says in verse 3. And God the Father says something else about him that is really important in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so in verses 5 to 7, God will grant him victory over his enemies. Now do you notice, this is a kingly psalm, isn't it? It's about the ascended Christ ruling as king. And yet, right in the middle of it, it talks about him being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So right away we know that Melchizedek is important because he's someone who points us forward to Jesus. But in what way? How does, how does Melchizedek point us to Jesus? Well, to start with, he's both king and priest. Now, those officers were, officers were very carefully separated from each other in the Old Testament. And when King Saul got into trouble with God when he took up a priestly role in offering sacrifices when, when Samuel was late to turn up. Remember how King Uzziah was punished by God with leprosy because he burned incense to God and wouldn't listen to the priests who were telling him off for doing it? The offices of king and priest were meant to be separate. But in the book of Zechariah, near the end of the Old Testament, the prophet predicted that come with time when there would be a priest on the throne. God's promised king would also be a priest. And when the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven, God says to him in the words of the psalm, You are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You are like Melchizedek because you are both king and priest. You are both the ruler of God's people and the representative of God's people to him. But there is more. God says in the psalm to his ascended king, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now that could mean that Jesus is like Melchizedek, except that his priestly kingship is permanent. Or it could imply that Melchizedek has a permanent priesthood as well. That being priest forever was part of being in the order of Melchizedek. Well, which one is it? Well, the Holy Spirit gives us the answer in Hebrews 7. So turn with me to page 1207. Page 1207. 
the last verse of Hebrews chapter 6 tells us that Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek right, which shows that the way we were reading Psalm 110 was right uh, he is talking about Jesus and this is what it says in chapter 7 verse 1 to 3 for this Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the most high God met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him and to him Abram apportioned a tenth of everything he is first by translation of his name king of righteousness then he is also king of Salem that is king of peace he is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of it but resembling the son of God he continues a priest forever wow so Melchizedek continues a priest forever who, who is this guy we know for certain that he foreshadows the Lord Jesus that he's someone like him whose ministry points forward to him can we say more I think we can because if there is only one mediator between God and man, if there is only one great high priest, if there is only one eternal king of righteousness and peace, then, then I think then this must be the Lord Jesus himself. It fits, doesn't it? Because it comes out of nowhere, without father, without mother, without genealogy. No beginning is no end, is eternal. But looking back, I think this is a manifestation of God the Son. As we're talking about God the Son taking a temporary human form before he actually becomes human in the person of Jesus. I can't be 100% sure about that. People disagree about it. Some people see him just as a, as a Jerusalem king who foreshadows Jesus in a special way. And, but either way, the important thing about Melchizedek is that he does point to Jesus. Whether it's a foreshadowing or it's actually him. What does Melchizedek have to say? Well, in verse 19, oh, back to Genesis, huh? Back to Genesis 14, page 12. This exalted, wonderful priest king speaks of God and he calls him the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. That is, God is the one who created everything. And so he owns it all. He's the owner of heaven and earth. What have we thought about what that means? Everything in heaven and earth actually belongs to him. He made it all. He sustains it all. He owns it all. Everything we have is actually on loan from him. Everything the king of Sodom had was actually on loan from him. Everything that Abraham had, everything that was taken off by, the, by those raiding rose raiding kings from far away and, and taken as loot that Abram got back actually in the end is all God's he's the possessor of heaven and earth and look what God has done verse 20 he has delivered your enemies into your hands oh, he's reminding Abram it's not your superior strategic skills that won this battle he certainly didn't have a bigger army it is God, the creator and ruler of all, who delivered Abram's enemies to him. That is how he got the victory. So Abram blesses God, he bless, Melchizedek blesses God, he blesses Abram, he serves him bread and wine, he is given a tithe by him and he reminds him of who God is and what he's done. 
Melchizedek is not the only king here. There is another king who is also an interested party. We met him just now. He's the king of Sodom, the evil city. What does the king of Sodom have to say? Well, there's quite a contrast. There's, there's no thanksgiving, no acknowledgement of God, no prayer, straight to business, in fact, quite rudely probably. Verse 21, The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Give me the persons, take the goods for yourself. Now, think with me. What was Abram's purpose in fighting these kings? What was Abram's mission? Was it to get the bounty? Was it, was it? It was to save Lot. Abram's purpose was to save one of the persons that had been taken. It was a rescue mission, not a bounty hunting adventure. But the king of Sodom says, I take the persons, you take the bounty. Abram has a choice. The king of Sodom has made him his offer. All the people, presumably including Lot, on the one hand, and you get all the bounty on the other. You know, would have been a bit tempting, wouldn't it? Lot was captured, after all, because of his own folly in leaving the promised land and dwelling with the evil people of Sodom. He was responsible for his actions. Giving him to the king of Sodom wasn't all that bad. He would just be sending Lot home where he belonged. And on the other hand, there is all this treasure. Yes, Abraham's rich and powerful, but this would be far, far greater in abundance. Had God not promised to bless Abraham? Couldn't this be how he was going to do it? Like Abram, the richest, the most powerful man in the land. I mean, with this loot, he could probably buy up vast tracts of it. He could grow his already successful little militia and slowly take over the land. And he was tied to it by the custom of the time. He wasn't stealing it. He defeated all these kings and got it. Give me the persons. You take the goods for yourself. It would have been an attractive proposition. I wonder if we're ever tempted to divert from our service of God for the mission God gives us when the evil one makes a really attractive offer well 2,000 years after Abram Jesus was remember how he was tempted in the desert after he was baptized and one of the temptations the devil shows him the kingdoms of the world and he says I'll give it all to you now if you bow down and worship me yeah, Jesus deserved it God the father had promised him the kingdom he promised him that he would rule but first you'd have to go to the cross. The devil was offering him a shortcut. To place Jesus under him, he would give him the kingdom in exchange for his loyalty. But Jesus refused to do so. Because there's only one who is worthy of worship, the mighty God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Or how would Abraham deal with the temptation? Verse 22 and 23. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord... That is, he's, he's made an oath, or he's making an oath. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that is, he owns everything, not you, or me, that I would not take a thread, or a sandal strap, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram's not going to accept the deal. Not just because of Lot. He's not going to accept anything from the king of Sodom because he does not want the king of Sodom to say that he's the one who made Abram rich. He doesn't want his blessing to be linked with Sodom. 
doesn't want to be a crony of the king of Sodom. His blessing would come from the Lord. He still had every right to the riches. He just chose not to take them up. That's why he could negotiate for his allies. He says to the king of Sodom in verse 24, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who were with me. Let Ane, Ana, Eshkol and Mamre take their share. Notice, the king of Sodom had left them out of the picture. Abram was fair. He wanted them to have their share, but he wouldn't accept his. He wouldn't take the possessions of the king of Sodom. But he accepted the blessing of Melchizedek. He paid him the tithe, regarding him as a king and a priest. So he had two kings, and he chose Melchizedek, and not King Barah. The king of Salem, not the king of Sodom. When we first started reading this passage, we thought it was about nine kings, didn't we? Most of whom were unpronounceable. But actually, really, it's about two. These two kings that Abram met at the same time when he's coming back from his victory. The evil king of Sodom, who was actually defeated, and yet talking as if he was very powerful. Who offered Abram what? actually would have been his at a price the price of betrayal and the king of Sodom was going to be destroyed by God very soon and all his possessions with him who does the king of Sodom remind you of tell you what he reminds us very much of the devil doesn't he he's not not the devil but he reminds us of him Abram would not make a deal with the king of Sodom Jesus would not make a deal with the devil. Abram would not betray Lot to the king of Sodom in exchange for great riches. Jesus would not betray us to the devil by skipping the cross in exchange for a kingdom. And we, we must not make deals with the devil, whether metaphorical or real. We must be wary of shortcuts to blessing. We don't want success if it's going to come in a way that does not glorify God. We don't want to be diverted from our mission to make disciples of all nations. To rescue those who are under Satan's bondage by bringing them the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Friends have nothing to do with the devil. In his time of temptation, Abram was met by the other king the king of peace. The king who provided for Abram. The king whom Abram paid tribute to. The king who blessed the Most High God and reminded Abram where his victory was from. And blessed Abram. Melchizedek. The king who is, or at the very least, represents Christ Jesus, our king and our priest. For Jesus is the true King who has ascended into heaven and reigns on high. The true King who rules over all and yet is our priest. The one who put an end to all the priesthood of the Old Testament who alone represents us to God because he offered himself once and for all as the perfect sacrifice for sins and ever lives to pray for us. That is the king whose blessing we need to live under. 
That is the priestly king whom we are to serve. That is the king that we offer our whole lives to in thanks and adoration. And that is the king whom we must meet in our time of temptation. Abram chose to serve Melchizedek, not Sodom. Which king will you serve? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the great rescue that you have won for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that through his death we have been forgiven and made right with you. Thank you that you have saved us from the slavery to sin and the devil. You have saved us from death and hell. We thank you so much, Lord. We thank you that like Abram, who did not give in to the tempter in, in his time of temptation, our Lord Jesus did not give in to the tempter either, but went to the cross for us. And our Father, we pray then, we would do the same. That when faced with a choice, we would not do deals with, with the devil. That we would not turn aside from your will and your plan. That we would be people who instead see what the Lord Jesus has done for us, appreciate it, and seek to be part of what he's doing in this world rather than looking for, for shortcuts uh, to success and blessing. Father, we thank you that this Lord Jesus has not only offered himself once and for all for us, but ever lives to, to pray for us, to intercede for us. And we thank you that through him we can have confidence that you will keep us, that you will help us walk your ways. Thank you that he is our great high priest, that he is our living ascended king and he is our redeemer who has rescued us. We thank you for him. In his name. Amen.